coming soon to a PPH pulpit. So today we will finish up part one of our study of the book of Judges. And then we're going to be taking a bit of a long break. And this is what's coming up. For the next four Sundays, we're going to be tackling the issue of uh, work, work in the Christian uh, life and work in a non-Christian world. And what does it mean? So it's going to be quite practical, I hope. And I'm sure you'll be blessed. And this will also be followed with uh, discussion questions that we will give out uh, for your cell group discussion. So that four Sundays. And then after the fourth Sunday, on that following Saturday, 11th of uh, October, we will have uh, a Saturday uh, seminar here in PPH. And what we are thinking of doing now is to arrange several facilitators and to have uh, different groups with uh, different kinds of focus. For instance, we might have a group uh, in the financial industry, uh, a group for marketing, maybe a group in government service, or a group in, say, social services. And then we'll be uh, having discussion uh, among ourselves and trying to work out uh, how to turn theology into practice. So this is what's going to happen on the, the series on work. After that, we'll have a prayer Sunday, uh, which Shiming's going to lead us. And then we will resume uh, our part two on Judges. Okay, so today's the last one, long break, and then Judges again. And then just before Christmas, we're going to have an interesting series, I believe, on people who were commended by Jesus. And uh, you can think about who these people are. Uh, the last one is Mary, just before Christmas. And Christmas. Christmas will be... Not here in PPH again. We're going to do it again in Teban Gardens. We've already booked the basketball court. Everything has already been approved. And we've even got a $1,500 subsidy from MCCY, Ministry of Something, Community, Something, Something, and Youth. Okay? So we can praise God for favor from the authorities. I think they like what they see last year. So when, we, when I ask for, uh, can you help? And uh, they gave a $1,500 subsidy. So that's what's going to happen uh, for the rest of the year. Today, we look at Judges chapter... Whoop, let me go back, go back, go back, go back. Go back, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> I've blown it. Today, we look at Judges chapter 6, verse 25 to 40. But I just want to read a few verses before that to bring us into context. Um, Gideon was kind of a what, what scaredy cat, is it? Uh, a little bit unsure of himself, and God wanted to use him mightily. And Judges chapter 6 from verse 21 says, With the tip of the staff that was in Gideon's hand, the, uh, the angel of the Lord touched the meat and the unleavened bread that Gideon set before God as a sacrifice. And fire fled from the rock, consuming the meat and the bread, and the angel of the Lord then disappeared. When Gideon realized that it was the angel of the Lord, he exclaimed, Ah, sovereign Lord, I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace, do not be afraid. You are not going to die. So Gideon built an altar to the Lord there and called it Jehovah Shalom. The Lord is peace. To this day it stands in the Ophrah of the Abyssalites. 
And Gideon was shown that sign in the middle of his worship and his sacrifice to God. A fantastic sign that he didn't ask for. But God chose to bless him with it. Fire came out of the rock, burned the sacrifice, and then it ended with that magnificent declaration of one of the names of God. Jehovah Shalom. The Lord is peace. And now we continue with the story from verse 25 with the story of Gideon being told by God to tear down his father's altars. His father's altar to two gods called Baal and Asherah. And then to offer a proper sacrifice using his father's uh, uh, seven-year-old bull as a sacrifice. Now, if you were Gideon, what would you think? If I were Gideon, I think I'd really be very puzzled. I just had a sacrifice. And God chose to do some amazing work there. The sacrifice was burned. I just had a great personal worship time. And fire consumed my sacrifice. I saw the angel of the Lord. He revealed one of his precious names to me, Jehovah Shalom. Peace. But now I have no peace because you want me to tear down my father's altar? And to mess about with my community's altar, my community's gods and idols, what should Gideon do? And this is where I think the thing slipped a little bit. Now, if you remember Star Wars, there is this so-called wise creature called Yoda. And Yoda said something like this. Better work. You can't hear that, right? Yoda says, do or do not, there is no try. Wow, I thought that was a great statement. Okay, I don't think there's a very good theological basis for it, but because it was so cute, I had to show it to you. Do or do not, there is no try. So I kind of think like if I were Gideon, that might be what's going on in my mind. God asked me to do this, tear down my, my father and my, my community's idols. And what do I do? I do or I do not. I don't just try, try. And that's what he did. He went ahead in obedience. God didn't say, you must destroy these idols of Baal and Asherah in broad daylight. And so Gideon got the help of 10 of his buddies and he did it at night. He did it. And I guess uh, after that, he had peace. And then he slept well until the next morning. That's when all hell broke loose. But he had peace under the eyes of Jehovah Shalom. The next day, the community found that the idols of Baal and Asherah had been broken down. And, and even a bull was sacrificed on it using the wood of the idols. And then CSI Manasseh, the, the CSI of the tribe of Manasseh, tracked down the perpetrator of this deed. And they found that it was Gideon. And they got Joash, the father of Gideon, to do something. He said, give up your son. We need to kill him for doing such a dastardly deed among our community's idols. Now, what would Joash do? What would the father of Gideon do? And they say blood is thicker than water. And I think Joash did something... Um, Quite wise, quite wise. Listen to what he says. I think there was already a, a, a chink in the armor of Joash 
the father. Because if the father were a, a deeply devoted worshipper of Baal and Asherah, I think he might well have handed over Gideon uh, to, be, to be executed. And I don't think his so-called faith in Baal was so strong. Otherwise, he would have handed over Gideon. And all it took was for Gideon, under obedience to God, to just challenge that little bit of faith that the father had in Baal. And so in Judges chapter 6, verse 31 onwards, But Joash, the father of Gideon, replied to the hostile crowd around him. And he said, Are you going to plead Baal's cause? Are you trying to save Baal? Whoever fights for him shall be put to death by morning. If Baal really is a god, he can defend himself when someone breaks down his altar. And so that day, they called Gideon Jerub Baal, saying, let Baal contend with him because he broke down Baal's altar. And this sort of reminds you of that episode in Acts chapter 5 when, when um, Gamaliel, the, the sifu, okay, the, the, the teacher of the Apostle Paul, stood up to say some wise words concerning um, Peter and the apostles, whom the religious leaders of those days were plotting to kill. And this one man's wise words diffused that tense situation, just as Joash's words diffused that situation for Gideon. Acts chapter 5, you will, you will remember uh, Gamaliel saying that, Leave this man alone. Let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop this man. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. And those were that parallel between Joash, the father of Gideon, and Gamaliel, the teacher of Paul. And then Gideon now has a new name. It's called uh, Baal Kiki Kukiki, Jerub Baal, okay? Which means Baal can take care of himself. Why do you need to go and fight for your fight, fight for, for Baal. Baal can defend his own honor if he is so powerful. And this was the courageous act of one man, Gideon, mixed with wise words from another man, his father, Joash. And what helped Gideon was also the surroundings, what his enemies were doing. The Midianites and the Amalekites were forming up for battle in the valley of Jastro uh, when this thing happened. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon, as the Bible says, and he was able to gather the men of Manasseh, his own tribe, and three other tribes of Israel for battle. And then came what I would consider this very inconvenient story of Gideon and the fleece. God called him out of the smallest clan of a small tribe to be a judge to deliver his people. God showed him the miracle without Gideon's initiation of consuming the sacrifice by fire coming out of a rock. God saved him from his own people who wanted to kill him for tearing down the altars to an idol. And now Gideon says, I'm not quite sure what God is calling me to do. And he wanted what did he say? Double confirmation. He wanted double confirmation, uh, as we would say in English. And so, let's read on in Judges chapter 6 from verse 36 onwards. Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel as you have promised, look, 
I will place a wool fleece on the threshing floor. If there is dew only on the fleece and all around the ground is dry, then I will know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And that is what happened. Gideon rose early the next day. He squeezed the fleece and wrung out the dew, a bowl full of water. Then Gideon said to God, Do not be angry with me. Let me make just one more request. Allow me one more test with the fleece. This time, make the fleece dry and the ground covered with dew. That night, God did so. Only the fleece was dry and the ground was covered with dew. So what is the moral of these two stories? One time dry, next time wet. What is the moral of the story of tearing down these idols and then after that seeking double confirmation via sheepskin? It reminds me of the story of a, a Sunday school kid, a cool club in our parlance. And you know that the, the story of the walls of Jericho? The walls of Jericho marched around three, uh, six times, uh, and then it fell, uh, Joshua chapter 6. So this Sunday school was asking her class, who tore down the walls of Jericho? And this little boy with a bit of a reputation says, Msigua. In Hokkien, means, it's not me. So the teacher was very concerned. You know, after I teach about the story and you say, it's not me. So she wanted to do a bit of family counseling and went that same Sunday evening to the mother and told the mother, you know, I asked who tore down the walls of Jericho and your son said, Msigua, it's not me. And the mother immediately replied, if he said it wasn't him, then it wasn't him. <laughs> so the teacher got even more perplexed. The next Monday morning went to see the father. So went into the father's office that day. He said, I asked your son, who tore down the walls of Jericho? And he said, Msigua. Then I asked your wife and she said, if he says it's not him, then it's not him. And then before she could go further, the father started taking out his checkbook and said, okay, Sunday school teacher, how much to repair the walls of Jericho? <laughs> it's like all these Bible stories doesn't mean anything. You know, it doesn't really apply to my life. There is no moral. Uh, there, is, there is nothing. It's just a story. And what's worse, it's a very distorted story by the time it got down to the families. Msiwa, it's not me. Some of us might well say, Msiwa, I don't worship Baal. I don't have an Asherah pole in, in my office or my home. I don't have any poles to dance around. I don't tear down my father's idols. This Bible passage and this sermon here in this hall has nothing to do with me. There is nothing for me to ask God to confirm or double confirm. I don't do sheepskin. There is nothing in this Bible lesson for me to respond to. Gideon may be a great man, but he's got nothing to teach me. It cannot be that the lesson today for us is to tear down our father's idols, right? Or to do sheepskin as a fortune telling. That's just a historical narrative. And therefore, we need to distinguish between the principles from the practice to sort out what is a doctrinal nugget from a narrative that is in the Bible. What are the principles that we can discern from this story? I believe one of them is about testing God. Should what Gideon did with the fleece be our practice as well? 
Do I bring a sheepskin to a prayer meeting? Can I say, God, if I see this girl three times in a row in three days, uh, then it's a sign from you that I will marry her. Is this to be a biblical principle? Well, it turned out quite well for Gideon. It worked for Gideon. And shouldn't we do the same and that it will work well for us too? I think we need the full counsel of God from Genesis to Revelation to help us to interpret this one small narrative in Judges chapter 6. Otherwise, we may well form a new Christian denomination just based on the practice of sheepskin tests. What does the Bible say? In Deuteronomy from the Old Testament, chapter 6, verse 16, it says, Do not test the Lord your God as you did at Massah. What happened at Massah? After witnessing the ten plagues that affected Israel and not Israel, uh, affected Egypt and not Israel, after there was that great deliverance through the Red Sea, after being fed by quails and manna from heaven, there was a temporary problem. No water. And the children of Israel tested God in this way. In Exodus chapter 17, verse 2, so they quarreled with Moses and said, give me water to drink. Give us water to drink. Moses replied, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? And this is where it appears for the first time in the Bible. Why do you put the Lord to the test? They were basically scolding God through Moses. They were scolding God through Moses. And Exodus chapter 17, verse 7 and he called the place Massa and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? If you are God, show me a sign. Show me water. No water, no God. That was what they were saying. They were testing God that way. What about the New Testament? In Matthew chapter 4, verse 5, then the devil took Jesus to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourselves down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Then Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. What was the test? If you land in a splatter of brains and blood, you are no Messiah. If you land like Superman or some Chinese Kung Fu fellow, then you are Messiah. That was the test for Jesus. Matthew chapter 12, verse 38. Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law came to Jesus. Teacher, we want to see a miraculous sign from you. And Jesus answered, a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a miraculous sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And then again, this is repeated in Matthew chapter uh, 16 from verse 1. The Pharisees and the Sadducees came to Jesus and tested him by asking him to show them a sign from heaven. He replied, when evening comes, you say it will be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning, today it will be stormy for the sky is red and overcast. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky but you cannot interpret the sign of the times. A wicked and adulterous generation looks for a miraculous sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. Then Jesus left them and went away. 
The sign of Jonah is the death of Jesus and rising again after three days. With Christ and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit of today's Christian, there is now a new dispensation that we are led by God, the Holy Spirit. And this is so important that, I mean, if you read Gideon and one, that, one short episode like that and versus reading the whole of the Bible uh, from Deuteronomy 6 in the Old Testament to, to the Gospels, uh, people asking for a sign, even to the epistles. 1 Corinthians 1, chap, uh, chapter 1, verse 22. Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. And several times in history, God still obliges to test us like this, exactly like Gideon. God obliges. One time, Abraham was looking for a wife for his son Isaac. And the servant of, of Abraham actually did such a test. In Genesis chapter 24, verse 14, this servant said, May it be that when I say to a girl, Please let down your jar so that I may have a drink. And she says, Drink and I will water your camels too. Let her be the one you have chosen for my servant Isaac. By this I will know that you have shown kindness to my master. So it works. It works. It works for Gideon. It works for the servant of Abraham. And then in 1 Samuel chapter 14, verse 8, this is Jonathan, the son of King Saul. Jonathan said, Come then, we will cross over to, toward the men and let them see us. This, they were fighting their enemies. If they say to us, if they say to us, wait there until we come to you, we will stay where we are and not go up to them. But if they say, come to us, we will climb up because that will be our sign that the Lord has given them into our hands. And so people set up all these kind of tests for God. If like that, means God is saying. If like that, means not, God is not uh, saying such, a, such and such. And it works. And then there is this very mysterious Urim and Thummim that um, is, is talked about in the Bible. It's mentioned six times in the Bible. Uh, it's some kind of a stone that is put onto the, the high priest's uh, coat that they use to determine what God is saying, yes, and, yes or no. But I searched the Bible. There is not one specific instance of, 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 of how to use Shasa Urim and Thummim that is on the, the coat of the high priest. Um, so it leads me to sort of think that it perhaps might only be uh, a, a symbolic thing that, um, that it is God through a high priest telling the, the children of Israel what to do. But I'm not clear about that, okay? But there is not one specific instance that uh, king so-and-so and so-and-so take out the Urim and Tumim and they cast it this way. If it's black, it's yes. If it's white, it's no or something like that. It's not there in the Bible. But it is there in the Bible that the early apostles drew lots. They cast lots to choose who to replace Judas. So it's kind of confusing. So if I drop dead now and you need a senior pastor, maybe you need to cast lots among the remaining five elders and say, who among you will be obey Somla, maybe the, the, the next um, uh, full-time uh, pastor? Does it work like that? Does it work like that? I've seen it work. I've seen it work, especially among younger believers. 
that when you're so young in the faith and you don't really understand too much of the Word of God or how the Holy Spirit uh, uh, grants you a witness in your, in your spirit, it often works. It often works. But the biblical principle is walk by faith, not by fleece. Okay? Walk by faith. Do not walk by sight and do not walk by sheepskin. Walk by faith. We have the Holy Spirit to counsel us and to guide us. But why did God oblige Abraham's servant? Why did God oblige Gideon? Why did God oblige Jonathan and his people and even the early apostles when he chose someone to replace Judas? It's just grace. It's just grace. I cannot explain it, why it works for some. But it is the grace of God, especially maybe to young believers, the, the, the early uh, apostles, and to a very chicken uh, Gideon and all that. It's the grace of God that, uh, that allows it. But for us, I don't think it is a biblical principle to go around carrying sheepskin and to test God. If this is black, it's yes, it's white, it's no. If I meet the girl three times in three days, that means I'm going to marry her. Not like that. The spirit of truth comes. He, the spirit of truth, will guide you into all truth. He will tell you what is yet to come. And very often in miraculous issues of, of this, it is God who initiates. You know, God in His grace helped Moses. Moses didn't say, okay, God, if I throw the rod down, it turns into a serpent, that means you are with me. Moses didn't do that. He didn't even know what to do. But God was the one who initiated it. You have a rod in your hand? What is that in your hand? Throw it down. Then it became a servant. You have uh, your hand, put it inside here, take it out, it becomes leprous. And then it became well. It was God who, initi- who initiates. When Gideon offered his sacrifice, the first sacrifice, a personal worship, one to God, he didn't say, God, if you're there, let fire come out from the rock. He didn't. And God was the one who initiated it. So it wasn't so much a test. It was God who initiated this. So that is the first lesson that I believe you can learn from the story of Gideon, that we don't test God, okay? We allow the Holy Spirit uh, to lead us. But if, if you are like so desperate and you're asking for this and that and, and God helps you out of His grace, then it's great. Praise the Lord. But it is not a biblical principle for us, okay? So no need to buy sheepskin. Second, so God is gracious, God is gracious. Secondly, tear down idols. When I read this story, it immediately reminded me of something in 1987 when President Ronald Reagan was standing at the Brandenburg Gate in Germany and he said this. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Very simple, tear down this wall. And out of that came the huge revolution. The Russian uh, Soviet Union was like split apart and and lots of people got freedom. Germany was was united. Because sometimes to be set up for success, we need to tear some things down. So let's examine closer what Gideon went through. These two idols, Baal and Asherah, what are they? 
I've been trying to do research and Bible dictionaries and, and Wikipedia and internet and commentaries on it. I'm, I'm still very confused. What I've been able to piece together is Baal is supposed to be son of El. El is like the highest god. El had two wives, one of whom was Asherah. But Baal, the son, usurped the throne of the Most High God and became the Most High God himself, and he married his father's, one of his father's wives, Asherah. Baal also had sex with a cow and got more power as a result of having sex with a cow. And Baal was able to fight many other gods, like the gods of the sea and the god of storm. And I don't know, it's just totally confusing to me. But this is Baal on the left and Asherah holding big breasts on the right. And the practices of worshipping these two idols include ritual prostitution, includes human sacrifice, and it, it includes all kinds of rituals to, to have human as well as agricultural fertility. And if you read the confusing stories of all these uh, gods or so-called gods, it, it really reminds you of uh, the pantheon of gods in the Greek and the, and the Roman world. And you can say that Baal has sort of morphed himself into the Greek Zeus, you know, that big number one god of the Greeks, and then which later morphed into Jupiter of the Roman pantheon. But what about today? What is it? Likewise, Asherah has morphed into the Greek Aphrodite, uh, which is the goddess of fertility, and then morphed into Venus. Uh, but what about today? Let me suggest that today, after the Enlightenment, where people don't talk so much about spiritual things already, we are scientific people, we don't do spiritual, we do what is logic, I believe that the metamorphosis has come this way. That Baal, you can look as an idol of pride. And Asherah, as an idol of perversion. These are the two modern-day idols that we need to tear down, get rid of. I want to quickly cover the perversion uh, one first, uh, because I want to get on to the idol of pride, which I think um, is more relevant for many of us. On perversion... James chapter 1, verse 21 says, Therefore, get rid of, tear down all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you which can save you. What is this idol of perversion? Sex outside the covenant of marriage between one man and one woman. Anything outside of that is perverted because that is not the purpose for which God made man and woman. And it, that perversion results in sexually transmitted diseases. It destroys the fabric of human society. And abortion, which is effectively human sacrifice uh, for the sake of personal convenience. Uh, the perversion of pornography, where you commoditize humans. And humans which were made in the image of God is now simply an object, an object of lust tear it down, delete it, empty the trash, throw it away, burn it. If it is an illicit relationship, break it off, flee from it, and then set up mechanisms to avoid it for the future. So that covers perversion. Maybe I'll talk about perversion more in the second service, I don't know. Now we talk about pride, 
Okay, this is where it hits us. Pride is an idol. It takes over the place of God because it takes the place of the Word of God. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 31. Get rid of, tear down all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander along with every form of malice. Bitterness, rage, anger sucks. It sucks our emotions. It sucks our energy. It has to be fed. Like some hungry demon, we feed it and then it stays with us. We are bitter, we are angry, we have rage because someone has hurt us. Someone has wronged us because we are right and they are wrong. And, and it's, it's like, who is he to do that? Why should I forgive and let this emotion and energy sucking demon go away? We lose our sense of logic and perspective. We are feeding this idol of pride because we are too proud not to. We feed it. You know that there is something seemingly more important than the worship of God? Do you know that? Or at least it takes precedence over the worship of God. And this is found in Matthew chapter 5, verse 23, where Jesus says, Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there and in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. Before you worship God with a gift, sort out that relationship. That, that horizontal relationship between man and man affects our vertical relationship and our vertical worship of God. It is the idol of human pride that stands between us and God. And we end up worshipping our own pride as an idol. Someone shared with me the story just last week. And it's an amazing story. This is a family with uh, three full-time Christian workers in a family. And, and many are Christians. Practically all are Christians. And there were long-standing hurts and dysfunction in that family. And on the mother's 80th birthday, amazing grace happened. As each member asked forgiveness from the other. And even the 80-year-old mother asked forgiveness from her children. And then she was able to pronounce blessing on that whole family. The idols was torn down that night. Thursday night, as I understand it. The idol was torn down when that horizontal relationship was reconciled. And then there is a good vertical relationship of worship to God. I believe that the idol of pride was torn down on three counts. Firstly, don't count. Don't count. What do I mean? 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 7 says, The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means that you, have, you are completely defeated already. Why not rather be, be wrong? Don't count if you have been wrong. Why not rather be cheated or defrauded? Don't count the money or the whatever the emotions that you have been cheated of, don't count. In Mandarin, it is called 不计较, right? Don't count. Don't count the times and the occasions when others have hurt you. So that's the first count, don't count. Secondly, count, count others. And this is found in Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, 
count others, consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. See, don't count if you have been wrong. Count others better than yourselves. And thirdly, count long, long. Okay, very, very long. Count 70 times 7. You know the parable of the unforgiving servant in Matthew chapter 18? When God forgave this person 10,000 talents, and this servant refused to forgive his lower servant 10 denarii. You know what is that? That proportion there, that proportion is 600,000 to 1. Okay? Somebody forgives me $600,000 and I refuse to forgive somebody who owes me $1. That is the proportion if you work it out. And Jesus said in Matthew 18, 22, I tell you, not seven times when Peter was, yeah, yeah, you know, seven times I forgive. Jesus is not seven times, 70 times seven. So do count. Do count. Because I, it took quite a long time to count to one, two, three, four, to 490, okay? Forgive again and again and again and again. But what happens when you don't? When this idol remains in your heart, the idol of unforgiveness because of pride. Matthew chapter 18, verse 34. In anger, his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured. In other translations, tormented until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each one of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. And Jesus was talking to Christians or at least his closest disciples. The absence of forgiveness leads to the presence of torture or torment. And this torment is sickness, absence of sleep, stomach ulcers. You know the, you know the drill. And I have seen this torment. I've seen it in my own family when this person cannot forgive that person and the person cannot forgive this person. I've seen it in other people's family, here in church, outside the church, of mother and child, of brothers and brothers. Somebody asked me, I'm preparing for my son's wedding. It says, oh, sitting plan, is it difficult for you at the wedding? Because this relative cannot sit with that relative. I said, thank God, thank God. <laughs> no such problem, because very few relatives to think of. And can you just imagine that? That is torment. Torment. So don't count even if you have been wrong. Don't count. Even if you have been defrauded, don't count. But count others better than yourselves and count on forgiving many, many times. 70 times 7 is just a metaphor for many, many times. On these three counts, you can tear down idols in your lives. The idol of pride. Because God is good. Gideon and the children of Israel were tormented, the Bible says, seven years. Seven years by the Midianites. Because they were worshipping the gods of Baal and Asherah. Pride and perversion and sexual perversion. But once they were torn down, God's goodness flowed in and delivered them from the Midianites and the Amalekites and united several tribes. So firstly, God is gracious don't test him. Draw near to God by the Holy Spirit. Seek his counsel, seek his truth. 
Secondly, God is good. Tear down whatever inadvertent idols you may have set up in your home, in your heart. And like Ronald Reagan, tear down that wall, Mr. Gorbachev. Don't fool around with Baal and Asherah in your hearts. Don't fool around with perversion and pride in your hearts. Tear it down, Mr. So-and-so, Miss So-and-so, Madam So-and-so. So was Gideon this great man that we can learn from? Gideon wasn't a great man. Gideon wasn't a great man. Gideon was a real scaredy cat. But Gideon's God is a great God. Out of the grace from his heart, Gideon can test him. Don't be angry, God. Let me test you one more time. God says, okay, okay, I'm going to make a great man out of you if you obey. If you even go and tear down your father's altars. A great God can do wonders through the limited and the flawed obedience of one man. So as with Gideon, so with you. One man or one woman can make a difference. Gideon caused his father even to come to his defense. Would Gideon have thought of that? That my father will come to my defense because I tore down his altar? And then he united four out of the 12, 12 tribes of Israel to fight against the Midianites and the Amalekites. So you tear down those idols of pride and perversion. And you may be the one inspiring your family and your friends. You may be the start of a revival in your family or your school or your workplace. One man, Reagan, at just the right moment, I believe it was a touch of God for him, what we call a kairos moment, a special moment appointed by God, says four words, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down that wall. It wasn't just that one man. I think everything in history was moving towards that. But one man stood up and rallied the nations, tear down that wall. So you might be the one man who goes home and says, this is the wall of separation between mom and dad, between you and parents and and, and you tear down that wall. Today might be your Kairos moment. Would you swallow your pride? Actually, you cannot swallow your pride. You've got to get rid of it. You've got to tear it down. Let me ask the musicians to come and help us with a closing song. Altar calls. I want to talk a little bit about altar calls. There's a very, very significant difference at altar calls between our first service here and the second service. The second service is way more responsive. Um, but we cannot measure, right? We cannot measure. If I preach this same sermon at the second service and nine people out of 90 responded at the other call, oh, great, I got 10%. So here we have 250. I should have at least 25%, uh, 10, 25 people respond if I were to hit the same 10%. You cannot measure, right? Because... You cannot see the heart. Only God can see, can see the heart. So I do not want to judge this way. But still, I would like us to think about the matter of prayer and response after we have heard God's word, after we have heard the preaching of God's word. That is it our own pride that prevents us from stepping up to respond or I don't know indifference this has nothing to do with me I'm quite okay that 
you don't really need God and you don't need the prayers of the saints around you. Hope it's not that. So once again, I'm saying we don't measure these things. It's a transaction between you and God. In the quietness of your own heart, you can respond. In a public, almost public declaration as you just gently come forward and have someone to pray with you because you know that I am weak. If I don't take this physical step of walking up and getting someone to pray with me, I will just leave here, go to lunch and it will be forgotten. So let me encourage you. Seek God. Bible says, seek God while He may be found. This might be the Kairos moment for you to tear down the walls, the altars of perversion and pride. Let's stand as we sing this song together. Give us clean hands. Give us pure hearts. We turn our eyes from evil things. Oh Lord, we cast down our Next to the first slide, which was we bow our hearts, I think. Back, 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 back. No, not this one. Seeks your 
we pray and as we pray I want to ask you to respond to God in your hearts if you would like to respond at the altar call so then you are obviously very welcome how great it is to have someone pray with you to seal that which you have surrendered that which you have torn down today before the Lord to cast aside our pride of wanting to be in the eyes of humans respectable God is no respecter of persons would you worship God with a clean hand with a pure heart tear down those idols of perversion and pride we welcome you to the altar let me just say a word of prayer to close this service and those who wish to be prayed with do come forward Lord this is our prayer give us clean hands give us pure hearts which are so easily tainted as we conform to the ways of this world almost inadvertent in the things that we try even to hide from you Lord, would you examine our hearts today? If there be unforgiveness, if there be bitterness, rage, and anger, get rid of it. Lord, get rid of it because I have no power to do so. I have just this small act of obedience that today I want to obey your word. Lord, help me get rid of of bitterness, rage, and anger. Help me to get rid of all moral filth. I don't want to worship Baal and Asherah. I want clean hands, pure heart. Help us, Lord, I pray. In Jesus' name, Amen.